but life is real. People have real interests. These are real people, you know, and they don't exist to serve our interest as a country. They're not means to our ends. And, and nation states behave that way. We would never behave that way as a person. We would never say as a person it's okay to use other people as means to serve our ends. That was Jason Jones, and you're listening to Choose Life, Abort War, podcast for peace. Choose life that we might be. Choose peace that we might see our tomorrow. Let justice roll like a river, flow like a river down. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Thad Crouch. We're getting into part three of a three-part episode, Stateless People, Human Rights, and Fatherhood, War, as a respect life issue with movie producer and human rights activist, Jason Jones. In this third part, we're going to get into some of Jason Jones' stories, encounters, and confrontations with Al-Qaeda warlords as he participates in his Vulnerable Peoples Project for the human rights of stateless people. I say that liberalism was, was, was birthed in a manger in Bethlehem. Mm. And that, that was this sort of profound personalism, this profound solidarity, this profound respect for freedom and and universalism. Not, it was no longer a tribal god, right. the death of tribal gods. And so I, I saw that. And I also saw this beauty, beautiful solidarity. Um, and it for me, it was just an, an aching and a longing, I guess, because no one was there for my child. Mm. No one was there for my girlfriend. Mm. Um, I wasn't there. I was at Fort Benning, Georgia, you know, on Sand Hill. Um, so I just, I felt compelled to be there for everyone I could. It almost feel like I'm sure a doctor would want to put me on a prescription or something to get over it. I remember a, a book I was reading on, on, on Catholic social teaching and solidarity and, and, um, Oh, what's the word? I can't even think of it. The, uh, the preferential option for the poor. Preferential option for the poor. Thank you. And uh, and there was this author I read that was talking about, uh, you know, in, in Matthew 25, where Jesus is saying, whatsoever you do to the least of these or whatever you don't do to the least of these, you know, the, the, the hungry and the, and the prisoner and the, and the thirsty and the, and you, you've done it to me. And this author said, this is more radical than anything any Marxist could ever come up with. Um, well, can I tell you, though, um, tragically, I'm not a fan of that phrase, preferential option for the poor. Okay. Uh, I, I've jujitsued it, and I, I say preferential option for the vulnerable. And here's why. I, I don't – the poor are not always vulnerable. And poor is relative, right? Sure. Well, if you're a hedge fund manager in in New York, I'm poor. You know what I mean? Sure, sure. Um, when, 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 and, yeah. And, and I don't want to – and, and and oftentimes the poor are not vulnerable at all because they have tight-knit families. Mm-hmm. They have great communities. And, um, and you can have a 16-year-old girl who's being raised by the wealthiest man in town, and he's molesting her every day, and she's extremely vulnerable. So – I want. I personally want to make sure that I don't scapegoat. And when we when we start talking about class and race, mm-hmm. um, gender now, 
um, we begin to see people as parts of classes and categories and not as human beings. We, we, we reduce it to identity politics. Yeah. And I don't think people are, are vulnerable because of their identity. And, 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 and I'll, I'll just say, for example, white privilege. Uh, I, I, realized, I realized that white privilege is a thing. And I, re, I remember the day I had it. I had to go, you know, look, I was practically, Ill, you know, I, because I have dyslexia, I read a lot. But writing was very challenging for me. And uh, I really had to develop processes to teach myself how to become a good writer. If I'm not saying I am a good writer, I, I think I am. I think I'm great at everything now. So um, it's just another problem I have. But uh, I had to develop. But one day I had to go to this fundraising event in um, McLean, Virginia. And it was, I thought it was just going to be some middle class home. And it was, I walk in and the first name tags I see on the table are Shriver, Kennedy. And I look to my right. And I see Justice Scalia right there, okay? Uh And and I'm like scruffy, like five-day shadow, a wrinkled khaki pants, a shirt, and like a a suit jacket I bought at Sears. And I was in my late 20s, and I felt very insecure. I just moved to D.C. from Hawaii. But by the end of the night, the owners, everyone at the home thought I was the owner's son because I just kind of was so comfortable and fit in. And so I realized that if I was the young black kid from my neighborhood, I grew up in a beautifully diverse neighborhood, um, that would have never had that misconception, right? So right. I was able to kind of seamlessly, people thought I was from Trustafarian, you know, they didn't know I had two kids. They didn't know I was born to a teenager and was a teen parent. They just assumed all these things because I was a six foot two, blonde hair, blue eyed Republican. And uh, so there is, there's truth to these benefits of class and tribe. We, we benefit from them, right? Um, and these are privileges we should leverage, but at the same time, um, on their own, hopefully in a liberal society, they're not enough to make you vulnerable. And I just want to make sure that I don't patronize people because of their class, their I, I don't their ethnicity, their gender, mm-hmm. and assume they're vulnerable. Um, there was once a, I don't know if it was bad. There was some article in some satire magazine years ago of this like beautiful black family it looked like the dad was a doctor or something with like a Lexus in the driveway. And, and it was like some family saying, Oh, a, a poor family moved to the neighborhood and we thought we'd bring them. And they like bring them canned goods. But the family was like in some beat old, beat up old Buick Regal. It was white family. And it was like, you know, they were assuming they were poor because they were black. I think it was the onion or something. I don't know. Uh-huh. But that, that's my point, and I know that's long-winded, but I think it's very important that those of us who want tribalism and identity politics is what leads to the breakdown of a liberal society, and it leads to violence. And so... Right. Tribalism should- dehumanizes and, yeah. and a preferential option for the vulnerable rehumanizes. Yeah, that's my long rant. It's one of my pet peeves. No, I, I, no it's a, I love it. I'm gonna, you, you stole books when you were in high school. I'm stealing this. I'm going to start talking about preferential options for the vulnerable. <laughs> I love it. I, I think actually when I first met you, not in person, I met you on Facebook and I forget you were interviewing uh, Amy Murphy. I think it was in 2016. I forget if it was at you know events outside the Democrat or, or Republican convention, and I I said something clever in a Facebook post, and you said stealing it. And so now I'm stealing from you, Jason. I'm going to use this preferential option for the vulnerable. Jason, do you have time to at least tell us one of the stories where you personally created uh, peace with a 
with the warlord. I know there's one story that, that I love about where with the with the wells, and I think it was a Sudanese Al yeah, Qaeda. Right. Did they have time for that? I, was, I had privilege of documenting it for uh, okay for uh, an organization, and I and, and I'll, I'll keep the organization nameless. But Eduardo Verastegui and I, uh, Eduardo's a, a Latino producer and actor, starred in Bella and Little Boy and Mall Cop Two, and among others. Oh yeah, he's the good looking of the two of you, right? I mean. You're the first person that's ever said that. They usually think I'm the better looking one, but okay. Well, wait, am, am I wrong? Maybe I'm missing something up. I thought you were telling me a story about all these women were running after him or something. No, his nickname, they call him the Brad Pitt of Latin America. So, yes, he's... Okay, okay, yeah. okay. I'm just, I'm teasing, you know. Uh, so, I tell Eduardo, you're what all men see when they look in the mirror. I'm like, we all think we look as good as you, brother. But... uh so anyway, so we were doing this documentary, and my friend was like, let's go meet with the Janjaweed, the Devils on Horseback, Al-Qaeda Sudan, because they were raiding across the river, attacking the Dinka uh, and attacking Christians. And so we went across the river. We had to dress up. We wore the, the same outfits they were wearing, and they put us on barrels. You can look on Facebook. You look at my, I'm going off social media for 90 days tomorrow, but uh, you can go look at it and see me on a barrel being pulled across a river in the middle of Sudan. Um, mm. to get to the side where these guys were, who I thought were very just, they were just beautiful human beings that were conforming to a wicked ideology of Islamist extremism. And uh, we, um, my buddy was basically negotiating with him that his organization would provide them deep bore wells. Uh, and we brought, as good good faith, we brought millions of dollars of, of um not not just for them, but, but but to the region, and we brought to them as well anti-parasite medication, another medication that they desperately need, antibiotics, etc. Is a goodwill offering. And my buddy's the real hero. He's lived there for over twenty years. Before that, he was in Angola. He's been shot, shot at, shot down. His planes were shot down. He's just a real hero. But yeah, basically the deal was like, you stop attacking for a year. And we will come back and drill these wells for your community. And they had some legitimate gripes, like the Dinka are stealing our cows, for example. And then we asked the Dinka, like, are you stealing their cows? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, well, that might lead someone to want to raid across your river. You know what I mean? And that's learn how these powerful regimes use personal interest to knit together these communities to create horrible violence. And, and one of the things I want to point out here for people listening to this that don't get it is, you know, we're talking about a conflict between these tribes, but it's very easy. If you want to get into tribalism, you can say, oh, there's the Christian group and I'm Christian and there's the Muslim group group and, and I'm not Muslim. And so I'm obviously going to pick the Christian side. But but in this story, you're like, hey, Dinkas, are you still in the cows? And they're like, yeah. And you're like calling out both sides. Yeah, I couldn't believe they just admitted it. The guy's like, we're Dinka. That's what we do. <laughs> we take their. <laughs> you know, I, I don't want to slander the Dinka. I'm not saying all Dinka are cow thieves, you know, but but life is real. People have real interests. These are real people, you know, and they don't exist to serve our interest as a country. They're not means to our ends. And, and nation states behave that way. We would never behave that way as a person. We would never say as a person it's okay to use other people as means to serve our ends. Um, but yet in, in foreign policy, that's that's the game. And uh, so, but fortunately, we have a, a, a civil society here. And as an American, I can be an actor in all of this. Um, 
and yeah, so it was just a beautiful thing to see and develop a relationship with that community. The wells were dug, the medicine was delivered. Those communities have peace now. Um, unfortunately, now the violence in Sudan is raging in the Nuba Mountains. I'll tell you one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen when I was in Dar- southern Darfur. There was a, 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 a internally displaced, there was a camp for displaced peoples, and we were playing soccer. And my buddy pointed to me and he goes, Jason, everyone on that field had been at war with each other. He said, there are people on that field who have killed each other's family members. Hmm. But I'm watching them play soccer and high five and hug each other. And that's forgiveness. I can't forgive my neighbor because they leave their garbage can out for two days after pickup, you know? And and, and, and I resent them for that. And, uh, you know, you, you take the trash can out, the garbage comes and then for days, the trash cans out there you're like are you gonna wheel your trash can in or what bro um but yet these people were able this is like biblical level forgiveness that i don't think i have the ability to do um and i watch them and yeah i've learned so much about myself with my work um working with the vulnerable communities and one day we'll be vulnerable by the grace of god one day i'll be elderly and i and i'll have a bedpan and i won't be able to move and some 95-pound little nurse is going to be all that's keeping me alive. And when that happens, then we have to be gracious and magnanimous because that's what solidarity is. It's to allow other people to do their responsibility and, and serve you and care for you when you're vulnerable. Um, and it's, it's also when, when other people are vulnerable that we care for them and serve them. The man that raised me, my mother's second husband, just died and recently, and I got to be with him. and care for him over the night shift as he was is fading in that last week. And to think that this was this man who came into my life when I was two, who was so strong, changed my diapers. And now it was my turn. And like you said, all violence is domestic violence. All love is family love. And, um, you know, that's what I said to the, the, the Janjaweed guy in Sudan. When he, he was very angry at us at first, and he, he was not trusting our motives or who we were, you know, and, a bunch of Americans show up in baseball caps and sunglasses. They tend to, you know, wonder who you really are. <laughs> right. And uh, and I told him, brother, I'm just here to help my nieces and nephews. That my nieces and nephews need their uncle. And, and, and I know, bro, and this was through an interpreter. I said, I know, brother, you're a big, strong man. If, if I was in a pickle, if I was in a predicament and I needed – you to help my children, I could count on you, right, brother? So that's what we're here for. I'm here for my nieces and my nephews. And the man, Al-Qaeda, John Juid, Al-Qaeda-affiliated John Juid, in Darfur, embraced me. Mm. And he said in Arabic to the man behind him, I didn't know this until my interpreter told me when we got on the, the barrels and went back home and got on the truck. He said that he said to him, God only, God sent them because only God can make a man love his enemy. And he knows we're the enemy, you know, he knows we're enemies. And, and they, they actually, the other guy yelled at him. It was a real tense moment. Um, but this guy didn't know he was quoting the gospel, you know. Right. And I will say this, the, the, the Randy and Jason Jones or the Marxist Jason Jones or no other Jason Jones would be this way. It is truly what they teach us in, as Christians, that it was not me that said that, but Christ in me. and. Uh, 
um, because I'm as tribalist as they are. I've written eloquently condemning the United States for dropping the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I, I, when I watched, mm-hmm. um, when I watched Midway with my wife recently, I will tell you that when I watched what the, you know, as the movie was watching, I thought of, I thought of Nagasaki and Hiroshima, like, you know, you got this coming to you. Like that sort of visceral anger. Mm, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? This isn't after yeah. it happened, Pearl Harbor happened. This is a guy who's written books on how immoral it was to use the bomb. But just this Hollywood movie in the heat of the moment made me not wait for that part of the movie. So we all have to know that it's in us and we have to guard against it. Mm-hmm. Even my wife will get mad at me sometimes when she thinks I'm not responding correctly to some foreign policy issues. Like, doesn't this make you mad or don't you? I'm like, yeah, and I want revenge. And I want, but it doesn't matter what I want. My sentiments don't dictate behavior. Yeah. Isn't it, isn't it interesting? Well, I want to come back to the sentiments don't have to dictate behavior. That's powerful. A lot of people don't get that. A lot of people think that they're free when they're slaves to, to, to their emotions. Uh, and, but, um, We've, you've, you've mentioned several times about, about, you know, the Nazis weren't Nazis. These people weren't these people. They were, they were, they were people who were, who were swept up by the evil of their age. And it's fascinating when, cause I get this too when I'm watching war movies or something that you can get, it doesn't just take an evil age. You can get swept up in a movie, you know, and, and hate the, the bad guy. Uh, um, and later find out, you know, the, the good guy was still in his cattle. Yeah, and, and, and we shouldn't pretend to be saints to others or ourselves. Because when we pretend to be these sort of perfect saints without emotion or sentiment, you remember when Michael Dukakis was asked about if somebody raped and killed his wife, if he would support the death penalty for that person, and he said no. Do you remember that? I was very young. I do not. Well, I, I, I was probably about the same age as you, but I wasn't interested in politics well, at the time. I remember because my mother's husband at the time was Greek. <laughs> And mm. Dukakis running for president, and it was big for the Greek community. Oh, of course. And, yeah. uh, that was kind of, I think, what destroyed it. That and wearing the helmet, it was kind of ruined Dukakis. But he had given some namby-pamby answer. But th- I think the proper answer would have been him for him to tell the truth and say that, you know, you wouldn't need the death penalty because I'd, I'd want to hunt down and kill the guy myself. But you know what? We have law to protect us from our own sentiments and emotions. And, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that I don't oppose the death penalty because I don't want people who actually commit violent crimes to suffer the death penalty. I, I don't support capital punishment because it cannot be administered justly in our society. And that I think it may le- leaves a more coarse and violent society for my ch- the, ch- the children of my wife and our future grandchildren. And that's why I oppose it, because I love my wife. doesn't mean I wouldn't want to hunt the guy down and kill him. And maybe I would. If it doesn't make right. right, and that's what I I do, and 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 I tell people exactly what I think. You know, I was kicked off of Michael Savage's radio show because I was debating him after nine eleven when he had said that we should nuke every major Muslim country's capital. Mm. You know, and I said, do you know, Michael, that was exactly the first thing I thought when I saw two planes fly into the World Trade Center towers, and it startled me that I thought that. And I said, I'm not going to let terrorists convert me 
to their ideology of disrespecting innocent human life. But, you know, it really was my first thought. And so we have these first thoughts. And like you said earlier, our first thought is not a sin. And sometimes I think when people don't have these thoughts, it's not that they love other tribes so much, but that they're not loyal to any tribe. You know, I find that I'm a tribalist. I love my tribe. I love my family. I love my neighborhood. I love my community. I love my friends. Except for the guy that leaves his trash can out. Yeah, except for that guy. (laughs) You know, it's like Rudyard Kipling says, you're a man when all men can count on you, but none too much. And so Mm. you want your friends and your family and your community and your political community you live in to count on you, but not to the point of being ignoble and unjust to others. And people who love have these sentiments, but, but we should not let these sentiments dictate our behavior, not as people and definitely not as nation states. And there will always be demagogues that will set their sails for personal ambition off of our sentiments, even if they're impure and unjust. And it's at that time, that's why I'm giving you so much time, brother, in your podcast, because I know this, not, you're not the Joe Rogan show. It's not a billion listeners. But what, <laughs> what you do have is the people that do listen to this, that click on this, they're special. They are thoughtful. And when we, we're approaching an age of mimetic contagion, that the, 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 the Atlantic Magazine this month has an article on, are we heading towards a civil war? That's not a mm. question. Um, uh, will our children suffer through genocides and democides and totalitarianism and total war? I, you know, my oldest son has already fought in a war. He fought in Iraq and Syria and I have seven kids. Um, so, so the people listening to this are the people that will be working, that will be standing up, uh, to the spirit of the age, you know, a large percentage of you. Some of you are, are polishing your halos and are preening ideologues. Uh, that's fine too, <laughs> but but a large percentage of your audience are the people that can resist the spirit of the age, and always stand with the vulnerable. Never scapegoat, not even the scapegoaters. You know the scape the scapegoaters say if we kill these people or destroy these people or marginalize these people, everything will be good. And then then people look at those guys and say no, if we kill those guys or marginalize those guys or dox those guys, then everything will be okay. Now that's what's called the. Gerard calls them a medic contagion. Yes. Well, let's not even scapegoat scapegoaters. Let's understand their interests, their sentiments, what they're reacting to, and then try from that understanding to, 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 to elevate their understanding to one of um, kindness, thoughtfulness, self-sacrifice, and a commitment to nonviolence. Amen. I, I love that you quote Gerard, one of, one of my favorite Christian writers on on peace and nonviolence, um, Walter Wink uh, quotes Gerard and and this this mimetic copying evil um, a lot. And uh, I also love that you tell these stories that are so touching and personal. And as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking about um, this this deacon at my church who who gave a homily, a, a sermon, and said Jesus didn't go around giving theological treaties. He 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 related to people and he told stories about how we should relate to each other and forgive each other and love each other and and he lived it out. And and what's 
fascinating for me listening to you is that you're someone who's well read you 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 know you you can quote philosophers and and historians and and these people and yet there's this simplicity about a preferential op for the vulnerable and and the things that moved you the most were not what you read in the book it was the eyes of that vietnamese father it was the wailing of the mother of your child and uh and that's so powerful and i know that a lot of listeners on this show who uh are going to be struck by someone who has such great empathy and go, wait a minute, How this guy's a Republican and has a sympathy? Yes, boys and girls. Um, yes. Well, political yes. instruments. And uh, can I address that real quick? Please, please. You know, the Republican Party, there are four parties in this country. There's Republican Party 1, Republican Party 2, Democrat Party 1, and Democrat Party 2. And Republican Party 1 is the one that I'm in love with, which is the party that was founded by these just wild-eyed abolitionists that were literally carrying guns and fighting in Kansas and Nebraska trying to end slavery and got their butts kicked, marched up to Ripon, Wisconsin, founded the Republican Party. The the founder of the Republican, one of the founders of the Republicans Party's wife, uh, Stanton, was the modern found, the founder of the feminist movement, you know? Um, and then, you know, within a decade, slavery was ended. They, there was a hundred-year march for through the Republican Party for civil rights. The Democrat Party was their adversary. Of course, it was the party of slavery and the party of segregation. The Democrat Party was the party that was um, uh, 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 admired Stalin. You know, it was the Republicans that um, the Air Corps generals that resigned when we started firebombing civilians, and it was all the Roosevelt-aligned. Uh, generals in the Army Air Corps that stuck around. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so you know, there's that's there's that Republican Party that stood up for uh, civil rights and the women's right to vote and stood up to totalitarianism. And there's the Democrat Party with the party of slavery, segregation, and totalitarianism. Uh, that's that's so that Democrat Party one to me, I would say, is the party of slavery and segregation, and uh, sort of loved everyone from Stalin to Mao to Shea. Uh, then there's that Republican Party too, which was the party at the local level. There was the party of the the WASP establishment that kept immigrants out, and so the Jewish and the Italians and the Irish immigrants picked up this sort of broken and dysfunctional Northern Party after the Civil War and knit together a party that fought for the interests of these vulnerable immigrants. And so mm-hmm, a lot mm-hmm. of people who love the Democrat Party they love what I call Democrat Party too. And their myth, mm-hmm. like my myth, is the party of segregation and desegregation and civil rights. Well, their founding myth, in their mind, the one they hold on to is it's the party of the little guy. It's the party of the immigrant. It's the party of the Irish and the Italians and the Jews. Um, and that's true, too, you know. That's real true. That's a real Democrat party that really existed. That was really true. Here in Hawaii, the Republican Party of Hawaii, I'm in Hawaii, uh, mm-hmm. was marginalizing Immigrants. Senator Inouye wanted to run as a Republican when he got back from World War II, but they were like, no way, Jap. He did not want to run as a Democrat. It was the party of Jim Crow and segregation and the Japanese internment in Nagasaki and Hiroshima. There was no way 
that Inouye wanted to run as a Democrat, but the Republicans wouldn't let him run. So the Democrat Party in Hawaii became the party of the migrant workers, the agriculture workers, the Japanese, the Filipinos. And the Republican Party was the party of the the Haoles, the whites, and the upper-class Hawaiians. That's the reality here in Hawaii. So that's true, too, right? And then, and so you've got these different myths that we all cling to. Um, so it's not that it's not that simple. There's not a good party and a bad party. Parties are tools and they're instruments for us to work through. And we should be involved in a political party or start a party because that's the way our system works. And so, as a young man who is pro-life, who believes in economic freedom and religious liberty. Um, I was attracted to the Republican Party. There are liberals in the Democrat Party. I'm the big admirer of Tulsi Gabbard. She is a progressive liberal. She believes in pluralism and diversity, and she's anti-war. She believes in freedom of religion. She's opposed, to, although she's an ethnic and religious minority, woman, combat vet. She's opposed to identity politics. Um, and I wish there was a right-wing uh, Republican liberal that I could point to that's as impressive as this progressive liberal, Tulsi Gabbard. But I think liberals on the left and liberals on the right, pe- people committed to pluralism and peace and openness, we need to work together and not confuse differing disagreement on how, prudential solutions to shared visions as, as um, good and evil. We all have the same values. We want everyone to have um to, to live in safety, to be free from threats of violence and coercion, to go to the best schools, to have the best economic opportunities, have the best health care. We just disagree on how to achieve that shared vision. That's why right. society is so key. So it's not a zero-sum game. That's not a winner-take-all. That there are checks and balances. That cooperation is, is demanded. And the change is slow and possible. Um and yeah, so that, but that's why I'm a Republican. Wow. Well, thank you for, for that. And what's been at the heart of what I've been hearing from you, Jason, is that we, we see each other as whether it's a tribe or a nation or a religion or a political party, that we see each other as human beings, that at any moment, rich or poor, black or white, first world or third world, at any moment, in any situation, someone could be the vulnerable. And and that's who we need to be in solidarity with. How many times you've brought up that the people that we see as evil were people who were swept up in the evil of their age. And one of my favorite, I'm going to read one of my favorite verses from, from Romans 12, too. And I think it's so appropriate for what you've been talking about. It says, do not conform yourself to the standards of, of this age, but let God transform you inwardly by a complete change of your mind, and you will be able to know the will of God and what is pleasing to Him and what is perfect. And I think that you've really been changed by the look in that Thai man's eye, the wail in the mother of your child's voice, and these encounters with all of these peoples around the world. And not only that, seeing those people as people, but also acknowledging the violent and angry sentiments in yourself and 
saying you're the worst person you know because you know all your all your worst thoughts and both of those things i think are so important to peace that we not only see the beauty in our enemies that we also see our own flaws and those two things i think are so key to being the people we need to become to do what we want to do to rehumanize this world Praise God. I love that quote from Romans. Thank you so much for listening. Remember, choose peace, choose justice, and choose life that we might live. Choose peace that we might see a tomorrow. Let justice roll, roll like a river, flow like a river down.